In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening. This is a very momentous moment. It's a moment that's full of mom momentness. And if you'd like to refute that, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> Tonight for the very first time in the remake Shadra history, we read Nagarjuna directly, starting with his main text, the uh, root verses on the middle way, the Mula, Madhyamaka, Karikas, or Madhyamaka, Karikas, as supposedly it's supposed to be pronounced, Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka. Hey, so, um, did uh, folks have a chance to read through at least the uh, the root verses, if not the commentary also? Uh, did did folks have a chance to read any of the other uh, article that I circulated from the Theravada Abhidharma, Abhidhamma, Dhamma, the real existence, the. Uh, The definition of Dharma as own nature. If you didn't get a chance to check that out, please do. I found that to be really helpful. I think I may still not be on the getting all the emails. Jeez Louise. <laughs> I don't think I, I know I've seen that for earlier from you from our sidebar, but I don't think I got the group email with that. Aha, sure enough. Oh.
Anyway. So we start with, uh, let's take a look at the table of contents, like any book. Nagarjana's Mula Madhyamaka Karika's our book. And uh, oh, does he not give a list of the table of contents? Holy shebang! Ah, uh, okay. Who who among you looked at other translations? Fess up. Nobody looked at another translation? You guys are very busy. I looked at uh, Jay Garfield's translation. Thank you. Dork in the middle. <coughs> well done. <laughs> dork in the middle. The middle dork. He's not in the middle, he's on the left. He's in the middle left. Anyway, strangely here, this uh, Mr. Jones, keeping up with the Joneses, does not have the, uh, t the list of the chapters. But you can flip through them, and I'm going to look at... Uh, there's uh, many other translations of this text, and um, in addition to the one that Chris mentioned by Jay Garfield, Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way. There's also one by the Padmakara Translation Committee, which is always one of my favorite translation groups called the uh, Root Stanzas on the Middle Way. And I'll just read the uh, table of contents. Conditions motion, sense powers, aggregates, elements, desire, and the desire is arising, abiding, and decay, agent and action, foregoing entity, fire and fuel, earth and later, oh, sorry, earlier and later limits, self-production, and other production, compounded things, contact, intrinsic being, bondage and release from bondage, action, self and phenomena, time, confluence of causes and conditions, arising and destruction, tathagata, mistakes, truths of the aryas, nirvana, 12 links of existence. And lastly, chapter 27 views. There are 27 chapters to the Mula Madhyamaka Karikas. I'll say it one more time. 
examination of conditions using Garfield of motion of the senses, the aggregates, the elements, desire and the desirous, the conditioned, the agent in action, the prior entity, fire and fuel, the initial and final limits, suffering, compounded phenomena, connection, essence, bondage, actions and their fruits, self and entities, time, combination, becoming and destruction, the Tathagata, errors, the Four Noble Truths, Nirvana, the Twelve Links, and Views. Notice anything interesting from the list of the table of contents, anyone? Anybody notice the uh, the significance of the listing of topics in the twenty seven? Anyone know the, um, those charts that we were looking at? Not that I can see. Anybody notice the absence of any logical theme? <laughs> How can you see an absence? How can you notice an absence? <laughs> the Garja would have a field day with that. Chapter 28. Absence and its appreciation. Seems to me there's no real particular order here. I keep wanting to find somebody who writes about the list of topics and like somehow reveals some profound implication of the order of them but I have yet to find that and uh, I've yet to find really anybody who uh, addresses the list of topics in any way but um, you know what's what's interesting is uh, Jan Westerhoff who we looked at last week um, he just put out I think last year his book The Non-Existence of the Real World which is kind of a retelling of Madhyamaka using Western philosophical language and, you know, techniques and so forth. And even in the introduction, he says, like, like, I'm kind of trying to do Madhyamaka here without, without using any Indian terminology. Um, but he doesn't follow anything like this structure. He follows a Yogacara structure, actually, of the non-existence of the outer world, the inner world, uh, the non-existence of uh, foundational truths and the non-existence of a view altogether. Uh, so it's like, it's, it's interesting. He, he does Yogacara, he does Manyamika through Yogacara. I don't, I mean, I guess it makes sense. He wouldn't import this crazy scheme. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Outer, inner, fundamental truths and views. The only thing I noticed was that motion was very early and he kept referencing back to it with many of them. That was really the only mm. th thread I've, or it seemed like it was important that motion came so early because he kept referencing back to it. Um, so does he reference back to the topic or to the methodology that he used in, in uh, refuting it? I mean, he's, he sort of says in a bunch of them, like, and as in as in mo the discussion motion and the of mover. motion yeah, yeah see chapter two basically he says a bunch of times 
Yeah. So as we go through, let's see if we can find, uh, sort of identify, it seems like he uses pretty much a few types of arguments over and over again for various different phenomena with uh, some interesting twists. And uh, just one last thing before jumping in is uh, in the introduction to Jay Garfield, he says something interesting about translation. He says he was striving for that elusive middle path between two other extremes in uh, translation. And when he says others, he uh, initially, in the paragraph before, was talking about the Buddhological scholars and uh, the Western revisionism versions of translation. And he's saying, I'm trying to, uh, I'm striving for the elusive middle path between two other extremes that occur in translation. I'm trying, on the one hand, to avoid the unreadable liberalism of translations that strive to provide a verbatim report of the words used in the original. I think the word was literalism rather than liberalism. Uh, Did I say liberalism? (laughs) You said liberalism. At least that's what I heard. Which is kind of the opposite. Thank you. Thank you. Avoid the unreadable literal literalism of translations that strive to provide a verbatim report of the words used in the original, even though he doesn't have the word in, but regardless of whether that results in a comprehensible English text. But there is, on the other hand, the extreme represented by a translation written in lucid English prose purporting to be what the original author would have written had he been a 20th century philosopher writing in English. Or one that, in an attempt to convey what the text really means on some peculiar interpretation, is what the text really means on some particular interpretation is in fact not a translation of the original text, but a completely new book bearing only a distant relation to the original. This hopelessly mixes the task of translation on the one hand and critical commentary on the other. Of course, as I've noted above, these tasks are intertwined. But there is the fault of allowing the translation to become so mixed with the commentary that one no longer has a grip on, for example, which is Nagarjuna and which is Garfield. And this is written by J. Garfield. After all, although the text is interpreted, in being translated, this text should still come out in translation as a text, text which could be interpreted in the ways that others have read it, because the original does indeed justify competing interpretations. That is one of the things that makes it such an important philosophical work. And that last point is the point that I resonated with, that um, it, it really does seem that Nagarjuna is writing in a way that allows for multiple interpretations and that forces one to think really critically about what he might be saying and like explore, therefore, what the context is. And thus, uh, some of us went on a deep dive into various possible uh, realms of context that he was writing within. Um, but uh, so let's let's keep keep that idea in mind that some translators 
create a whole new work that you know is basically their presentation of Madhyamika as opposed to Nagarjuna's. And there's always that fine line between translation and reinterpretation that happens. So, you know, ideally for, there, there's sort of like two ways to approach Nagarjuna. One is the way we're doing it, just like read all of these different things in, in, uh, uh, in entirety or in some in summer, summary or excerpts. And the other is just to like go really slow. And like we could have taken one chapter of the Karikas and looked at ten different translations and commentaries and see, you know, what have we got here. Um, and so I admit that I, I sort of set the stage by my uh, by my uh, uh, um, creating a syllabus that goes through all these different texts and forces us just to go through them quickly uh, because uh, I have, you know, a certain agenda. In, and uh, so I'm coercing you into that agenda. But I encourage you to, uh, if you have the interest and the time, to look at other translations and really take a deep dive into this material. My approach, my agenda is to like give us a taste of the difficulty of understanding this material without understanding the larger context and without the help of uh, the many amazing commentators that wrote on these topics for thousands of years afterwards. And uh, so that's why I tend to focus on the latter, those other commentators. Kevin. Yeah. Um Speaking of context, was was Nagarjuna writing uh, typical, typically of um, the period in Sanskrit? That seems to be the first question I would ask. Well, there there were a lot of. I'm sorry. No, if if he was, if he wasn't, if he was intentionally being. obtuse or or perhaps enigmatic to foster questions and to as you suggested earlier perhaps give rise to interpretations of his meanings that seems to be an interesting question his his intentions is there anything else to give us a clue well, there are many texts in this period written in Sanskrit. There, there was a, a trend for uh, Indian Buddhism to start writing in, in Sanskrit. Um, so that was not new, unique, but um, I don't know of other works really from this period. So I, I have a feeling, though, that his style of writing in this metered verse um, with uh, these, basically just like every sentence is a tongue twister of the concept, and just like going around and around in circles over it, talking about the concept and its opposite and its the, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it was probably radically different than anything else that had been written at that time. 
and, and therefore extremely provocative. Um, if you look at other, if you look, you know, we, we did a search on what are, what are the Abhidharma texts that he presumably had access to and was writing about. They're extremely methodical and extremely sort of definitional. You know, this is this, and it has this these qualities, and it relates to this, and there are this many factors of it, and so on. So it's, you know, just totally descriptive. And his uh, just like takes a, a huge leap in many ways from that style. But we will, we will uh, try to share soon some of the possible suspects that he was uh, writing about or in, in response to or critiquing. So let's dive in. So I'm on page one of our book by uh, uh, translated by Richard Jones. I bow to the fully enlightened Buddha, the best of teachers who taught that whatever arises dependently is unceasing, unborn, unannihilated, impermanent, not coming, not going, and who also taught the peaceful stealing of all conceptual creations. Conditions. One, no entities whatsoever are found anywhere that have arisen from themselves, from another, from both themselves and another, or from no cause at all. So right off the bat, um, refuting production from the famous four alternatives. There are four conditions. The um, So I think we looked at this earlier, right? We read a, a few paragraphs. The, previ the effective cause, usually known as the causal condition, the objective uh, support within the world, um, which is the um, object condition, and then the continuity with previous states, the pre-existing condition. And the fourth is the overall influence, which is the dominant condition. There is no fifth condition. So he's using the methodology very clearly laid out in the Abhidharma texts. The self-existence, swabhava, of entities is not found in their conditions. So where do they get it from? And if there's no self-existence, no other existence, i.e. the self-existence of something else, can be found either. Activity does not have conditions, does not have, does not possess conditions, nor does it not have conditions. So activity does not exist in a way without conditions, but it doesn't possess those conditions. Moreover, conditions do not exist with the power to act. The conditions themselves can't do anything, nor without the power to act. If there um, is no power to act, then there's um, and there's still no conditions. Conditions are called conditions because something arises depending upon something else. But as long as that something does not arise, why are the conditions not really conditions? nothing arose, then they didn't do their work, their job. They don't get paid. Why are they not non-conditions? 
Thank you. Why are the why are the conditions not really non conditions? Thank you. A condition is not admitted for either what is not real or for what is real. If something is non-existent, how could it have a condition? And if something is already existing, how could it have a condition? What do the conditions do? They're useless. It's already there. And if it's not existent, how can a condition possibly have any impact on it, on something that doesn't exist? So too, when no existing, non-existing, or existing and non-existing basic phenomena are produced, how is any cause admitted? Something real is shown to be unsupported by another real thing. What did that say? Something real is shown to be unsupported or not supported by another real thing. When a thing exists without such a support, what purpose would an objective support serve? So he's talking about the four conditions, the object condition. When basic phenomena do not arise first, cessation does not occur. Thus the condition of continuity is not applicable. He's talking about the previously existing condition. And when the reality has ceased, what condition applies? Since the existence of entities without self-existence is not found, we cannot say this really existing, that one comes to be, which is exactly the terminology used by the Buddha of parents, purportedly in describing depending arising. Uh, when he uh, criticizes, uh, there's a famous sutra where he uh, the father, what is it, the rice seedling or something, he criticizes some monks for explaining dependent arising incorrectly. And you read what they said and you're like, what's the problem with that? And then he says it and it's just slightly different, but I guess worlds apart. So there's this phrase, this existing, that comes to be. And Nagarjuna says, since the existence of entities without self-existence is not found, we cannot say this is really existing and therefore that comes to be. An effect does not exist in conditions that are either separate or combined. The effect is not there. How can one, then how can what does not exist in the conditions come from those conditions? It just sort of magically appears. But if the effect that develops from conditions does not exist in those conditions, why does it not develop without those conditions? Why do you need the conditions if it's already there? The effect is not constituted by its conditions. Conditions are not self-created. So how can an effect that arises from conditions that are themselves not self-created by be created by those conditions? Therefore, in conclusion, an effect is not made either by conditions nor by non-conditions, i.e. realities other than conditions. But in the absence of an effect, what are conditions or non where are conditions or non-conditions found? So what sort of logic is he using in this one? Timing? Timing of like cause and effect? No? 
language. Precedence. Precedence based on this, that precedence. Okay. One thing, something else happens. Okay, I like that. Precedence. Order of precedence. We'll start with that. That's that's fitting that that's the beginning. Motion. What has already been moved is not now being moved. What has not yet been moved is also not now being moved. <laughs> Do you feel moved by this? <laughs> but apart from what has already been moved and what has not yet been moved, any current motion is not itself a reality that is being moved. Any ideas? What has not yet been moved, uh, sorry, what has already been moved is not now being moved. Okay, since it was already moved, it can't, it's not in the process of moving. What has not yet been moved is also not now being moved, because he just said it's not yet being moved. But apart from what has already been moved and has not yet been moved, any current motion is not itself a reality that is being moved. So he talked about um, what has already been moved and what has not yet been moved. But he didn't mention in the first two sentences what was in the process of moving. Isn't that what he's trying to refer to in that last cryptic phrase? Yeah, so apart from what has already been moved and has not yet been moved, any current motion is not itself a reality that is being moved. <clears throat> so when something is being moved, when something is moving, is the moving moved? Well, ultimately, and painfully, this is going to say there's no moving, but I must admit my first response to this always is to get up and move <laughs> and, and sort of go like, okay, what am I doing if this isn't real, right? Yeah, I mean, we could ask Emily that, who says, you know, she just moved five <laughs> and said, no, there was no moving. Tell, right. your tell your husband that. Says, no, we didn't, we didn't move, honey. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nothing moved. <laughs> Objection. Where there is movement. Sorry, I'm sorry. You're going. Oh, okay. Chime in again soon, please. Uh, where there is movement, this is the objection. But hey, where there is movement, there is motion. Since movement is in what is the currently being moved, not in what has already been moved or not yet moved, motion is only in what is currently moving. Okay, okay, the law of the excluded middle, it's not yet excluded. Reply, how is the movement within what is currently moving acceptable when the non-movement of what is currently moving is not? <laughs> Chris, what do you make of that one? Well, I think the idea is that um, that that a movement is something that takes uh, takes time, occurs over time, 
right? So, so you're in point A, and then at time a later time you're at point B. Um, but there's there's no if we if we slice up time, you're always in one point at one time. So how can you be said to be moving at that particular time? You can only be moving at a later time or a prior time. But if we if we speed the camera up and we go to a later time, then you're just in a different place, still not moving. And we have to we have to go through time. So there's no there's no time in which one is in movement. One is always at a fixed point at a particular time. So the objection is, well, they're in motion the entire time. And the response is, why is that any better of a reading than them not being in motion at any particular point in time? Okay, so there's this notion that um, movement means going from one point in space to another point in space, as opposed to being in one point of space and not going to another. And uh, so, Chris, when we speed up the camera, uh, but the camera freeze frames motion and it chops it into little little bits of now and now and now and now. But the camera doesn't really capture motion, does it? I mean, how, how, did, how did one thing get to another place if it didn't move? Well, I think we could we could simply talk about things moving rather about movement rather than like a real thing that really moves. You know, we could we could just loosen up. A, I think I think Nagarjun's whole point is we just need to loosen up a little bit. You know, it's not it's not all quite so serious. You know, and it's our, it's our attempt to describe things uh, as as really existent that gets us into trouble. But um, you know, he he says elsewhere in overturning the objections, right that. Um, there, there's no such thing, you know, the objection, the objector says, well, you say there's, there's no such thing as a chariot. Um, and, and uh, how can that be the case when we see chariots all the time? And he says, well, the chariot could be empty, but we can still use it to carry things around. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that if I recall from the last time I went through some of this, it seems like the, a lot of it is about the notion of a mover and that's where you get into the sticky problem of you know because sometimes the mover is not moving and then other times obviously we think the mover is moving and so then it becomes kind of a uh, the uh, trying to tie movement to a mover as something that moves but that same mover is also stationary somehow i think that's where it, it i mean it's as Chris said, I think the lightening up is a is a good idea. Well, because... Yeah, I I think Chris uh, hit a hit a point there before that Nagarjuna uh, um, uh, almost um, imagined Thomas Edison's um, most pictures with uh, as as you described, um, Derek, uh, the stop motion. Uh, in the illusion of movement and believing that um, uh, consciousness occurs in momentary bits is, is what he's saying, that motion is also in momentary bits. Like Chris said, if you're in any one place, 
in any moment or sub-moment or sub-sub-moment. And so there's no motion. But the rest of his argument seems to be a semantic one to me. And that just drives me crazy. I can't stand this argument because it, it's all about language. It's not about um, real, real things. It's, it's language. Yeah. I, I agree that it, it, I mean, the thing is too, that while freeze frame is, it's one thing if you're actually taking pictures and all that and sewing them into a movie, that is, but you know, when we act, I, I guess maybe our perception is more subtle, you know, if you can perceive everything at the, you know, 60th of a second, but you know, if we just wave our hand like this, it seems like, you know, there is a movement going on and it's yes, not. Is that our illusion of reality in, in our mind? Because our nerves are giving us pictures at a certain rate. We don't think of it that way, but those images are actually, you know, uh, projected into our cortex from our, you know, optical system and, and neurons. And it's stop motion, just like a film is. If if we believe that particular view, but I guess the one problem. Yeah, but that's a fundamental Buddhist view that that I, consciousness is just momentary bits. I I understand that that I mean that they conceptualize it that way, but I still think you know if we it, it does seem in some ways that typically they say we're not denying experience as we experience it, and yet. This it, this one is the one of the ones that is the most hard to not feel like it is denying experience as we experience it, you know? I also think, though, Cynthia, the point you made about this being about the mover and, Kevin, your complaint about it becoming semantic, I do think is important because it speaks to the relative nature of what we mean when we say motion. So, like, things are only moving in relationship to other things um and our individual experience of them so i think that the line we're not quite there yet but you know this if the mover moves in fact two motions follow that by which the mover is called a mover and that by which a mover then currently is moving i think goes beyond just a language thing and is really pointing out the fact that in order to establish motion there has to be like an observer observer of the motion and then the thing moving away from that thing or moving relative to other things, which I think gets down to whether things have any kind of, uh, or, you know, th the idea that everyone has their own point of view that they are operating from within. The importance of the individual's take on their reality. Right. What, what, wasn't there somebody that walked behind Emily like yes. a minute ago? Did, did they move? I didn't see did they move? Uh, did they move across that that image that thing? Did it move across the screen? That was only your take on reality. Yeah. I thought I thought that was the mover. I, wasn't that the mover? That was the mover. That was the that was the mover. <laughs> Chris, no, you know I've no, moved a lot myself, no. and I think. Hiring movers is really the way to do it. Yeah. You, know, you can avoid this whole problem. <laughs> but 
I did want to address what Cynthia said about um, not denying your immediate experience. And of course, that's, uh, you know, very important. Um, but I think the, the other point, too, is to not assume your immediate experience uh, has a meaningful relationship to the nature of, of reality, you know? So uh, otherwise, you just get into this thing of naive realism where, you know, selves exists, tables exists, you know, uh, you know, uh, shoes and ships and sealing wax, you know, those, those are all real existent uh, phenomena, rather than um, a conceptual projection um, that merely exposes our own habitual tendencies. That's a great um, so I point. Think, you know, I think, we... I think what Nagarjan is doing is, is not denying the appearance of movers or movement as a um, perceptual uh, artifact, um, but in inviting us to examine the sort of misplaced assumptions uh, that we have uh, as a result of those conceptual artifacts. Um, so, you know, it seems very silly to talk about, you know, you wave your hand and it's like, you know, millions of different little freeze frames. Uh, but it's, it's also uh, conceptually very uh, difficult to explain that away. Um, you know, I, th I think the argument is, is pretty uh, convincing in a way. And, and it should also be noted, right, that this argument is the ones that the, um, the Adidharmists were um, promoting, um, that, that dharmas are momentary uh, little bits of existence that come in and out one after the other. So um, I'm so just going to throw out one thing. It wasn't his invention, but is uh, an, a real Abidharmist idea that he's critiquing. And was, of course, also quite famously noted by Zeno the Greek, uh, whose, you know, uh, paradoxes around motion are, are widely known. The brother of Zorro. So the only thing is, if even if you were to say it's a bunch of freeze frames, how does, like, there's still, if there's a different location for each of those free fra freeze frames, then that still leaves the question, how does it get from this little one to this little one to this little one? And it's, it's a little bit like when you break the particles down, right? Uh, right. Well, and I think that's exactly the point, is you, you can't yeah. satisfactorily explain how it gets from point A to point B unless you say there's like a point C between them. And then no, 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 unless point. you acknowledge that there's the possibility of movement. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, well, but I mean... But 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 that's simply uh, sorry for the pun. That's simply hand waving. I mean, you you can't you can't say that it gets from point A to point B just because of movement. And like, where is it between those? You know, it's it's like there's no. You, you need to say where it is, how it got from there. Uh, other, I'm not sure who wrote that definition a, uh, that you must do that. I'm, I'm going to go well, back to. Like, I have to disagree. I, think, I, disagree I, with I think everyone it that that it's uh, or or maybe it was Emily, I, I forget who said it, but that it has, um, it's, it's analogous to it, uh, to come to an, it, it's analogous to uh, one's coming to an understanding of ultimate reality and relative reality. That we have, you know, our reality is dealing with movement, but ultimately is there such a thing? Thank you, Kevin. That was very moving. <laughs> very moving. <laughs> well, I also wanted to say that, interestingly, 
um, and, and I thought I read it in the text somewhere, maybe it was in the commentary, that current, uh, currently physicists and cosmologists believe that everything is in motion. And uh... we're in motion all the time. Everything in the universe is in motion. In motion, in motion, in we're, motion. We're we got to talk about what in motion. Wait, wait, wait. Let's. Yeah, we we got to move. We got to move to someone else here, Eric, and then yeah. Iswar is going to tell us about on the quantum level, please, Eric. Well, I don't think this is. I, for some reason, this really frustrated me when I read it, and yet when you read it it just appeared a little bit clearer that it's the same argument as he made in, in the first verse of he's just putting a wedge between causes and the effect. And here he's just putting a wedge between a thing at rest and a thing at motion and saying, how can you ever say it arise? And we think of it as one thing, but really it's like the shoot and the seedling. There's still, and then there's something with a characteristic of motion, which is much like shoot and seedling. And a shoot is not a seedling. I mean, a seedling is not a shoot. So he's just putting, he, he's putting a break in there saying, you're just thinking of this as one thing and it's going through these changing states. I move it over here, I move it over there. But how did a still object become a moving object? At first it was still. I, I, I just think it's the same logic. It's not like a Zeno thing. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That, that there's been change, and you can't ever, if if they're real existing objects, you can just push this wedge between them and say, "How did the still thing become a moving thing?" Yeah. Yeah, Eric. That's you, you get thirty thirty that, seconds to respond. That that, that uh, Richard Jones addresses in his commentary that the, that Zeno was um, was and the Greeks were proposing that that there wasn't movement, there were only real objects. And Nagarjuna's project is, is, is exactly the opposite, saying that there's no real objects, but there is movement. There you go. There's a big movement underway for that. Uh, Iswar, do, do quantum, do, uh, is there movement on the quantum level? Um, I mean, so... <laughs> Uh, Sorry to put you on the spot. I hope you don't mind. Oh, no. You're an expert in the quantum level, I think, right? Uh, I don't know. About, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I guess what I would say is, uh, you know, I, at, at that at that level, it's uh, uh, um, non-deterministic. So, um, you know, you, uh, you can only make uh, measurements of uh, you know some quantity and say here it's a uh, position. And, and you know, there's no uh, d direct cause for uh, what you measure. Um, but you, you can't say uh, because of this. Um, it uh, moved this over here. Happened. Yeah, um, you can only say that uh, you know uh, with some probability um, I could have gotten gotten this, or I, I could have been in this uh, position. So it's it's I mean even that is uh, simplifying it a, a lot but mm. um, you know we we kind of think in this classical way of uh, 
tra trajectories and you know th things kind of moving in this in, the, in these nice shapes and yeah one ball hits the other ball and yeah, the, the like second that. ball moves right but yeah but when you kind of get to that level it's it's just a complete completely different thing mm. Thank you. That's great. And so, you know, with movement, how do we know that the background, everything else hasn't moved and the, act and the object actually was standing still? Like with the sun and the earth, you know, we, people used to think that the uh, sun was rotating around the earth and it turned out to be the opposite. So maybe, uh, you know, everything else moved and it just looked like the moving object moved, but everything else moved in relation to it. And it was still the whole time. Would that so, have any relevance? You know, would would stillness have any? To, could you determine stillness in a world that was constantly moving? So, from that point of view, <laughs> if you get up and walk to the doorway of your room, you're saying that maybe really the room moved and you stayed in the same place. Yeah, it moved under I, my feet. But you I also seemingly stood up, so. Um, I mean, even just going from sitting to standing, you know, I, it just, you know, I, that doesn't seem to really um, explain if you use just the practical. I mean, obviously, I reside in the relative world. I understand there's ultimate, but uh, I still find so, that, you know, as we reside in the relative. So the question, about, is, the question is, are we talking about movement or are we talking about there being something that moves? If you go to that, I think that that's where it makes more sense to say you can't find a mover. And then if and then if there is something that moved, who moved it? Okay, so let's continue on. Maybe we just see like read the first two lines. Maybe he tells us. Maybe you know, towards the end. It only gets so. worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. I think I read the objection. Okay. The reply, how is the movement within what is currently moving acceptable when the non-movement of what is currently moving is not acceptable? For whoever asserts that there is movement of one called a mover, it follows that the mover was itself initially without motion before they became a mover. But having motion means currently moving. Thus, a twofold motion is entailed in the eye, in the idea rather, of the movement of motion. The first movement by which there comes to be the one who is called a mover, and the currently moving itself of that mover. <laughs> There's the um, movement of motion. The first moment by which there comes to be the one who is called a mover and the currently moving itself of that mover. If this duality of movement and motion is accepted, then it would follow that there is a duality of movers. For apart from a mover, motion does not occur. If there's no mover, there's no motion. If a mover is set apart from the motion, then motion does not occur. They're separate things. If, the, if motion does not occur, how could there be a mover? The mover does not move. 
just as a non-mover does not move. And other than a mover or non-mover, what third possibility is there? Indeed, how can the idea, insofar as there a mover, as there is a mover, it moves, be appropriate when there is no mover without motion? For one who entertains the proposition, the mover moves and looks for the motion of a mover, it follows that there is a mover who is initially without motion and who then moves. Thus, if the mover moves, in fact, two motions follow that by which the mover is called a mover and that by which a mover then currently is moving. Motion does not begin in what has already been moved nor does it begin in what is not moving, nor does it begin in what is currently moving. Where then does it begin to move? <laughs> prior to the beginning of motion, there is neither the current moving nor the prior moving in which motion might begin. How could there be motion in what is not yet moved? And when the beginning of motion is not seen, how can we posit the moved, the currently moving, and the not yet moved? A mover is not stationary, nor is a non-mover stationary. And other than a mover and a non-mover, what third possibility could be stationary? How will the idea, insofar as there is a mover, insofar as there is a mover, it is stationary, occur when a mover without motion does not occur? Nor does one stop from moving nor from having moved, nor from not having moved. The beginning of motion and the ending of motion are to be analyzed the same way as the motion. To say the motion and the mover are the same is not correct. However, to say the motion is other than the mover is also not correct. If the motion were the mover, then the oneness of the one who acts and the act itself would follow. But if a distinction is made between the mover and the motion, then there would be motion without a mover, and a mover without motion. When motion and mover cannot be established through oneness or difference, how can they be established at all? The mover okay. does, sorry? Well, I just wondered, if, I mean, in this context, can, I mean, there's, he seems to be denying the possibility of motion without a mover, but since we generally have the view that there are no entities, why couldn't I mean? It seems like they're they're it's kind of anti-change. It seems to imply like, you know, if nothing can move, nothing can change, and that doesn't seem consistent in a world that's supposedly impermanent and always changing. So wait, wait, wait. When when did he say that the world is 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 uh, impermanent and unchanging? He he himself did not say that, but I thought that was somewhat part of underlying. Um, teachings in the Buddhist tradition. He said at the beginning, correct? he said at the beginning, I bow to the fully enlightened Buddha, the best of teachers who taught that whatever arises dependently is unceasing, unborn, unannihilated, impermanent. I think you mentioned that. Not coming and not going, which might be a way of describing moving. And who also taught the peaceful stilling of all conceptual creations. And I, I bow to I, the Buddha as well. Um, I guess I'd go back to Kevin who who mentioned that this one is all about conceptual designation, verbal conceptual designation of like there's a mover and there's a moved 
and there's a movement and we put these labels on empty space right but i guess that's where i'm saying okay if we i'm just exploring this again forgive me i'm i'm playing devil's advocate here i understand that this but you said how how could there how could there be change? And we're saying the world is constantly changing, but the world is not made up of things that are constantly changing. Right. And so that's why I was saying, why does this, it seems like this is saying you couldn't have motion without a mover. And I'm, I, my mind can conceive of motion without a mover. Yeah, but I think you mean a perpetual move, a perpetual movement machine. No, it's just the, that if we acknowledge the concept that, you know, nothing exists in a solid way, then it seems like movement is just, in fact, very much the normal state of things. But I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Movement <laughs> is, uh, I, I guess if you're saying there is no thing, therefore not, there can't be movement, that seems is reasonable. He, is he talking about a mover as an object or a, a phenomena? That I, I think is is what he's how he's actually using that term. I mean, I think, in that case, we might as well just debunk the notion of the the entity from the beginning, and then you don't have to talk about motion as an issue. It's just there's no thing. Right. Well, he obviously thinks motion is uh, a phenomena of an object. And that, I think, is what's ultimately confusing for us because right. we think of motion as uh, as something moving by, uh, due to forces. But so then I guess the question is, then does it become a semantics issue that what we, you know, what we use the term motion for is reduced to it must have a thing and a, you know, a thingness about it. As opposed to what what word can we use for the uh, notion of change? Because even change implies something going to some other state. So I, it's, it does seem like it's a little bit of a semantics challenge. Yeah, if you, but he also, I think, uh, perhaps if we read on, comes to the notion that movement is only in the present that we can't think of uh, a mover uh, in the past or in the future. I don't know if I correctly surmise that, but that was Interesting, yeah. Okay, well, let's go on. A mover is not stationary, nor is a non-mover stationary. I think I read that. You did okay. that one. Yeah, so 18. To say... The motion and the mover are the same is not correct. However, to say the motion is other than the mover is also not correct. If the motion were the mover, then the oneness of the one who acts and the act itself would follow. Did I not read that? But if a distinction is made between the mover and the motion, then there would be motion without a mover and a mover without motion. When motion and mover cannot be established through oneness or difference, how can they be established at all? The mover does not make the motion by which the mover is called mover, since he <laughs> does not exist as a mover prior to the motion. So who or what is it that moves? But that mover does not make a move other than the move by which he becomes called a mover. 
since when one moves, one mover moves, two moves do not occur. <laughs> Isn't there a book? Arwana wrote a book called A, a True Move. Making a True Move. Making a True Move. That's right. We'll have to <laughs> like let just, her know. She'll have to pull it out of circulation. Yeah, change that. <laughs> Uh, sounds like a chess game or something here moving. Uh, let's see, a truly existing mover does not move by thought, word, or deed, nor does a non-existent mover move, nor does an existing and non-existing mover exist. Such a motion, a mover, and the place of the motion are not found. Nailed that one, huh? Sort of close that one shut. Okay, the senses. The six senses are hearing, seeing, sorry, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind. Their domains are what is seeable, and so forth. Seeing does not see itself. How can what does not see itself see other things? Any takes on that? The seeing see itself. Can we see seeing? Why does that lead to not being able to see other things? What's his logic there? If seeing can't see. The counter example that fire can burn other things but cannot burn itself does not apply. Why? Rather, the above analysis of motion applies to both fire and seeing. The above analysis of motion applies to both fire and seeing. When no seeing exists at all that is not currently occurring, how can we say that there is a prior existing sight that currently sees? How can there be a previously existing condition when there is no current condition that it's previous to. Sight indeed does not see, nor does non-seeing see. Non-seeing doesn't see, because you're not seeing, but why does seeing not see? That's a tough one, huh? In addition, what is uh, anybody looking in the commentary? Any? I didn't find his commentary that helpful on this one. Yeah, I, I had to turn to, to, to Jake Garfield on this one because I yeah. also found the commentary totally unhelpful. Yeah, what did you find in Garfield? Can I, can I just read this one? Yeah, after? yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, so this is in response to uh, verse two, which he translates, that very seeing does not see itself at all. How can something that cannot see itself see another? And then Jay writes, this cryptic argument is aimed at any theory according to which vision is inherently existent. The idea is this, if the visual faculty were to be inherently existent, then seeing would be its essence. Its action would hence, be, would hence require no distinct conditions and no external objects to be seen. That is, if vision were inherently existent, vision would simply occur in virtue of the existence of the visual faculty. Suppose then that there is no inherently existent visual faculty and no external sense object for it. It would only have it would it would then only have itself as a possible object of sight. Yet it would be seeing, and so would have to be seeing itself. Therefore, Nagarjuna argues 
A view of vision as inherently existent would entail the possibility of visual apperception, which is seeing itself, but there is no such possibility. So the fact that vision can see other things cannot be in virtue of its containing percipence as an inherent property. Containing what? I think I percipience, percipience? Oh, like the sentience, sentient, uh, yeah, the, capa- like the capability to perceive. Perceptive. Yeah. The, the point yes. is, I think that that vision, if, if vision was a fully, if, if vision has svabhava, svabhava, it should see. It, it, it should, should be see. seen. It shouldn't depend on anything else to see. It should see itself. It, right. it would, uh, if it if it does depend on other things to see, then it's conditioned phenomena rather than unconditioned phenomena. And it's and not really seeing. Yeah, so it's funny the way that, that that grammatically he doesn't link these at all to to each other. These two statements: seeing does not see itself. It's more like if you say that seeing does not see itself, then how can what does not see itself see other things? But the you know, part of me, part of me wonders if um, if the text that we've been given down was was really, you know, it was written in verse and, and probably, you know, that way so it could be memorized, you know, by by people who didn't have copies of the book or, or couldn't read. And I'm wondering if these are just like the the pith arguments and they would be fleshed out by you know your community and teachers. I definitely it, it does think seem so. quite often that he leaves he leaves a lot lacking. You yeah, know, to it out. yeah. Re- that's why I keep feeling like he's he's responding to like some textbook that they're all familiar with. But well, I also think it's really confusing because I would <laughs> I would never think. Well, yeah, granted, it's all confusing, but I would never think of sight as um, ultimately existing. It just is is preposterous to our contemporary minds, but to the to um, to them at that time, to Nagarjuna and the community, it wasn't, and and that it almost makes the biggest challenge for us to understand. Why they're arguing against things that are so obvious? Okay, let, let's let's pause there because let's pause there. Uh, that was well put, and the question is sort of like: um, is is he's arguing against a certain view that seems absurd? Right, so that's why we get to this idea of the straw man. It's it's like he's taken statements from the Abhidharmists and stretched them to their limits in one way or another, either semantically or ontologically or epistemologically or one way or another. He's like drawn out, drawn them out to their absurd consequence, and then he shows the fallacy of them by having made them glaringly absurd. But, you know, what you just said of like, did they really think that scene was was without cause, basically? And was just like self-existing. And so there's this faculty of sight and it sees. 
And that's its job, and it does that 24-7, no matter what. <laughs> but then, you know, he's going to go about refuting the, uh, the alternative of uh, seeing that's caused. But it's, no, it's, it's good. really, I, I think it's a really interesting question of like, where do we end up at the end of Nagarjuna's philosophical project? Um, he's, you know, his, his charge against the Abhidharmists is that like, well, you believe in, in Swabhava and it doesn't exist. So all that exists is what is appearing to us. And the Abhidharmists can say like, we were never talking about Swabhava. You've invented this thing for us. You tied in a knot and then untied it, and you're left at exactly where we started. <laughs> you know, our, our theory is is completely unchanged. Yeah, we couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, <laughs> just just like you said it in some really convoluted way, and like you pu- pump yourself up. You know, makes yourself makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. But I mean, like here we are. <laughs> One of the things that I noticed when I when we were doing some of those readings. Um, in the little sidebar project that we were doing is that it, it seemed to be being emphasized a lot from the Abhidharma point of view that one of the things that's very essential is that it shouldn't be taken without the meditation, you know, extensive meditation practice. In other words, it's very much tied to, you know, it, it, their purpose was not just, you know, creating the dictionaries and the relationships, but it had a purpose related to one's experience. And I feel like that's a little bit like the Yogacara as well. You know, you have to have the practitioner viewpoint, not just a sort of uh, dry philosophical. Um, yeah, it has to it has to has an impact on the, the person. Right. So the, the purpose of what they were doing was not just to fix these sort of categories and relationships and causalities, but it was I mean, it had to do with relating with their experience and how to make sense of it and that included you know extensive meditation so i feel like i feel like that was a message somehow in that in the readings that kind of it was subtle but it it was i thought helpful so so then the question is is um is are the abhidharmists not doing what you just described or are they doing it and is nagarjuna doing it or not doing is he you know are is one of them not sort of making it part of their being i just i feel like he's negating the value of what they did did i i'm not saying either one of them wasn't meditating i think it's just that this after the fact interpretation i think as we've said in many cases seems to um reduce them into the straw man when it's not in, in a way that's not completely correct. I think they just. But how do you how do you know that? You know, let, let's let's presuppose. You know, think of the context. You know, dream up a context. So, I'll paint one context, and you know, each of us can come up with numerous ones. I'm sure, but you know, we have a monastery and in, in uh, I guess southern India, and around. Uh, 200 years after the common era and they're studying you know they have these young monks who are you know very diligently studying their abhidharma text which involves you know memorizing the text and all these things and and they probably chant it together and then they run around and they serve the older monks and they cook and they clean and then they 
they run into the shrine hall and they do their chanting and their pujas or their, you know, their morning and evening things and maybe they sit a little bit and, uh, and, and they go to classes, you know, and they go to classes and they're these stodgy old men who are like, read these texts, you know, and they like drill in these definitions to these, to these young students just like over and over again, like sort of in a drone, you know, like, oh, this is the conditions, here are the conditions, and the conditions contribute in the following, you know. And then then you go to this other class, it's like an elective, you know, and it's like down the way down the hall, off campus, you can barely find it, you know, and you go in there, and there's this guy's like, there's no mover, there's no motion, there's no scene, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> uh, you know, so who's on first? Emily, what's on second? Well, and, you know, again, we're starting this side research, and I think it depends what piece you read and whose theory you're following. But the this Joseph Walser book implies that it's it's much subtler than, oh, he was just arguing with everybody and that there were actually a lot of schools where he was trying to take their arguments and do very fine-tuned sort of updates to what they were saying and add in little additional changes um, or you know additions or um, adjustments or trying to kind of fine-tune their arguments and then there were the like some very specific texts that he was outright saying like, no, this is wrong. So my sense from, you know, that's the book I've mainly been reading so far is like, so if that, if his theory is to be believed, it seems like it's, he was really trying to do this project of like, okay, I'm going to convince this specific school that they're on the right track, but here's the tiny little things here and here and here that they should be tweaking to their understanding of real real existence now we're talking about something important candy oh you can hear him through my headphones yeah. <laughs> okay sweetie you can have the candy <laughs> you know i think a lot of it comes down to um you know young westerhoff at the end of that essay from last week talked about the cognitive dimension of swabava and that Swabhava is a, a sort of a inherent projection that we make on the world. And, and that is what is being criticized here. And that if we, if, if we weren't making that inherent projection, um, then none of these arguments would be necessary. Um, so in that sense, they're not only implicit in the Abhidharma and the you know, various Hindu schools that he was arguing with, but is, is like a, a common misconception to everyone. And then it, um, his critique takes the form of looking at the Abhidharmist, uh, maybe as Emily suggests, as a, uh, as a form of revision, uh, but is addressing kind of like a, a core human misconception. Definitely. And I just wanted to add, like, I loved reading this and then, meditating is this to me this was almost like a, a vipassana exercise or something it was very cool to like read it and then have it sort of be lurking there as i was meditating so i yeah thought that was very cool 
yeah that gets back to uh you know what what is the point of the thing and uh you know it it, it does seem to be something that's like a koan or like uh some sort of meditative uh uh puzzle um what do they call those things that you have to a riddle uh, you know like a meditative riddle like okay we're going to meditate on the faculty of sight so okay you have two eyes and what is seeing are and you know are the eyes seeing and do the eyes see themselves do they see what's outside how can they see you know and just sort of like, ideally, to leave your mind in in, in conceptual suspended animation. So it's like koan is what you're saying. Sort of, it's our, it's perhaps a, a Tibetan Buddhist version of koan. Yeah, or or oh. like a, a, a Abhidharma version of Vipassana, as uh, Emily is saying, where like you know we know the Mahamudra version of like you know. Look at the looker. Where? Who is it that's thinking? Where are the thoughts? And here it's like, um, you know, looking for something we can't find. We're looking for the mover. Where is the mover? Just grab that guy that walked behind Emily. You got him. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so exactly that's the 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 way of. Uh, of doing the meditation is, as you said earlier as well, you know, you get up and you move around and it feels like there's movement. And then on the other hand, you like drill into the conceptual, uh, the way that we build a, a, a conceptual world out of that. And how do we get beyond that facade of the conceptual fabrication? I think it's also, it's like, it's like working with kind of those like like subtle hunches that we have. Like I've got a hunch that there is such a thing called seeing. And it's not very well defined, but like I have this hunch that when I look, I'm, I'm seeing something and that there's a, there is a there there. And he's trying to explain that there isn't a there there. You may think there is. And here are some like totally clunky arguments that will deconstruct that for you. Yeah. I don't know if subtle hunches, if I, it's the way I would describe it, but implicit assumptions that, you know, okay, I'm here and I'm looking at the room and, you know, so who is it that's looking through my eyes? And <laughs> how does what's being seen my, by my eyes get to the seer, to me, who's the one that's seeing? How does, you know, how does that transfer happen? Is there like a mechanism that packages the scene and presents it to the seer? And then if if the seer is not the eyes, then what are the eyes doing? I don't know, stuff like that. Okay, let's, let's finish up, do a couple more here. Ah, uh, let's see. When no scene exists at all that is not currently occurring, how can we say that there is a price? Did that one right? Is a pro, uh, is a prior existing sight that currently sees? Sight indeed does not see 
nor does non-seeing see. In addition, the seer could only be explained by means of seeing. There is no seer or seer apart from seeing, nor not apart from seeing. When there's no seer, how can there be seeing or an object that is seen? Just as the birth of a son is said to be dependent upon the mother and the father, so too the arising of visual consciousness is said to be dependent upon the eye and the material form. Because of the non-existence of the seeable and the seen, the four psychological factors constituting a person, feeling, forming ideas, dispositions, and consciousness do not exist. How then can the remaining steps independent arising, as laid out in chapter 26, arise? This analysis should be applied to the other senses, the agents who sense, and their domains. So interestingly, by the way, in, uh, in 8, second to last stanza there, he lists those uh, skandhas 4 through five, uh, 2 through 5, feeling, ending with consciousness. And number four, he's translating as dispositions. And number three, as forming ideas. Um, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche def uh, translates the fourth one as concept. And he's translating that as dispositions. And the third one as basically concept forming, forming ideas. And, uh, you know, if you look at the Abhidharma presentation of, the, of those uh, faculties, I think his is actually not that inaccurate. I think it's his. Which which one are you saying? Richard Richard Jones's translation, I think, is is very accurate. Mm -hmm. That the third skanda is where concepts are born, and the fourth one has all the pre, you know it has the the root clashes and the subsidiary clashes and the positive emotions and anyway. The aggregates of the body, apart from the cause of the material form of the body, the form is not perceived. Apart from form, its cause is not seen. If there were form apart from its cause, then the form would be without a cause. But nowhere is there any effect without a cause. If there were a cause of form apart from form, then the cause would be without an effect, but there is no cause without an effect. If the form were already existing, its cause would not be occurring. And if the form were not existing, its cause would also not occur. However, a form without a cause does not occur. Therefore, one should not generate thoughts of distinctions relating to form. Identifying the cause with the effect is not appropriate, but not identifying the cause with the effect is also not appropriate. The same method of analysis applies to all the other aggregates of the body, feelings, consciousness, perceptions, and dispositions, and to all entities with form. In a dispute, when an opponent makes a refutation utilizing emptiness as the means, everything one says remains unrefuted and will be equivalent to whatever is to be proved. 
When one makes an explanation by means of emptiness, everything one says remains unopposed and will be equivalent to whatever is to be proved. <laughs> emptiness has no efficacy, something like that. But it, why did you know? Why does he shift from the aggregates to emptiness suddenly? It's it's a little it, this because the stanzas, aggregates are empty. This this stanza is odd. All of a sudden, he enters in emptiness and like makes this sort of parenthetical statement that really applies to uh, all of the chapters. It's sort of like a footnote. Oh, by the way, if somebody argues against you using emptiness, then you can ignore well, them. It's a little difficult, right? Because all of the chapters are refuting things. So he has to, he, he has to tuck this in somewhere. But it can't be its own chapter because then it would, it would mess up the form of the whole thing. Oh, come on. Why not? <laughs> Why not a 28th chapter? Emptiness. It, it would have to be like, a, like, like book two. <laughs> book two. Things we affirm. <laughs> uh, a, very, a very short book. <laughs> yeah. Things that uh, we believe. believe Prasangika beliefs. The five elements. No space is seen prior to the defining characteristics of space. If space existed prior to its characteristics, then it would follow that it exists without characteristics. And there is no entity anywhere at all without characteristics. When an entity without characteristics does not exist, where can characteristics appear? Characteristics do not appear in what is without characteristics, nor in what already has characteristics, nor in anything other than what is either with or without characteristics. And where no characteristics occur, no entity with characteristics occurs. And where there is no occurrence of an entity with characteristics, no characteristics can arise. Therefore, an entity with characteristics is not found, nor are any characteristics found. In addition, no entity is seen distinct from an entity with characteristics, nor are there any characteristics, sorry, nor are any characteristics seen without an entity. When an existing entity is not found, of what can there, can there be the absence of what can there be the absence of an entity? And without the realities of an entity and an absence of an entity, who could be aware of an entity and absence of an entity? Thus, space is neither an entity, the absence of an entity, an entity with characteristics, nor indeed the characteristics themselves. See, uh, point six is playing on the, the characteristics of emptiness, empty, uh, space rather, is defined as um, the absence of opposition. And so to have a, a characteristics that is a characteristic that is an absence is just begging for refutation by somebody like Nagarjuna. The space is neither an entity, the absence of an entity, an entity without characteristics, nor indeed the characteristics themselves. The remaining four elements are to be treated like space. Those of little intelligence who see in terms of the isness, sorry, the isness and not 
isness of entities do not perceive the peaceful stilling of what can be seen. <laughs> so he doesn't like not isness of entities. And uh, he says that there's a peaceful stilling of what can be seen. So there, he says, of what can be seen, the stilling of what can be seen. What an enigmatic phrase that is. Is he a mystic or is he a logician? Or is a magician? Passion and the impassioned. What an odd topic to pick. The desired desire and the, the, the desirous. If the impassioned person existed prior to having passion, and thus apart from passion, then passion would be dependent upon the impassioned person. There would be passion only when there is already a person who is impassioned. Let's try that again. If the impassioned person existed prior to having passion, so if I existed prior to having passion, and therefore apart from passion, then passion would be in, would be dependent upon the impassioned person. And there would be passion only when there's already a person who's passioned, impassioned, imbued with passion. On the other hand, when the, and if the pa there's only passion when you're impassioned, then how could there be how could it one be impassioned? It's something an impassioned person prior to the passion. Yeah, it's more like it's more like I think I think he's saying <laughs> the person who later becomes passioned. But on the other hand, when the impassioned person does not exist, how can there be passion? Whether or not passion or the impassioned exists, the analysis would be the same. The simultaneous arising of passion and the impassioned cannot occur because they would then be mutually independent, nor is there coexistence in what is one, for nothing arises simultaneously, excuse me, with itself. But how can what is separate coexist together? If coexistence were a unity, it would exist without the association of passion and the, and the impassion. On the other hand, if coexistence were not a unity, but instead there were separate and distinct parts, it would also exist without any association. However, if there were a coexistence in the separateness, how can the separate existence of both passion and the impassioned be established? Only from that could coexisting be established. But if passion and the impassioned are established as distinct entities, why do you think they coexist? Since separateness is not established, you desire coexistence. But for the sake of establishing coexistence, you desire separateness. Because separateness is not established, coexistence is also not established. From what separate entities do you expect coexistence? Therefore, passion and the impassioned cannot be established either as existing together or as not existing together. As with passion, there's no establishing of any basic phenomena as existing together with another 
or as not existing together with another. Okay, I give it up. I'm not. I'm not impassioned. <laughs> this wouldn't this be like a great Valentine's Day card? Yes, that's a good these, one. These would make really good Hallmark cards. I think you know we could make like a whole series of Nagarjuna's Hallmark cards out of these things. Jeez. Have you ever watched the Colbert thing where he does that's cards? A, yeah, that's what I was thinking so, of. Doug. Yeah. Yeah, show the Hallmark version instead of showing the first draft. Show the Nagarjuna version. Which would be a good first draft because it would be unacceptable. <laughs> we'll work on those till before next Valentine's Day. Let's see if we can do one more. The conditioned. That which is conditioned. Everything we know, in other words. If the arising of phenomena were conditioned, then the arising would itself have the three characteristics of conditioned things. Arising, enduring, and ceasing. Oh, we're in trouble already. If the arising were not conditioned, how could it be a characteristic of anything conditioned? The triad of arising, enduring, and ceasing cannot function separately as characteristics of anything conditioned. But how could they be together in the same place at the same time? If there were further conditioned characteristics to arising, enduring, and ceasing, there would be an infinite series, an infinite regress of each, the arising of arising, and so forth. Hold on one second. That was the illusion of Derek moving. That's right. I had the I think illusion. It was the arising of arising. <laughs> Pretending to arise and then falling down. It sounded like my neighbors are out there talking. It sounded like they're in my driveway or right outside my window. Anyway. Um but if there are no such conditioned characteristics arising and so forth would be conditioned, would not be conditioned if there were no such conditions. Objection. The arising of arising only gives rise to the initial arising. The initial arising only produces the arising of arising. I mean, let's get this straight. Once it's arisen, there would no longer be arising. Why do you keep talking about such silly things? Reply. If the arising of arising is the arising of the initial arising, then it has not arisen from the initial arising. But how then, but sorry, how then can what is not yet produced by the initial arising produce it? Um, but if what is produced by the initial arising gives rise to the initial arising, how does the initial arising give rise to it? Objection. If something while arising can give rise to something else, it can give rise to what has not yet arisen. As the light from a lamp illuminates both itself and another, so arising can give rise to both itself and other arisen things. Reply. There is no darkness in the light or where the light is located. What then does a lamp light illuminate since illumination is the destroyer of darkness? 
How is darkness destroyed by the arising light when the arising light does not reach or touch the darkness? Indeed, if the darkness is destroyed by the light that has not yet reached it, then the light existing here will destroy all the darkness existing in all the worlds in all the directions. And if a lit lamp illuminates itself and other things, then surely darkness too covers itself and other things. <laughs> I love it when they, they talk about light and dark as things. How could an arising that has not yet arisen give rise to itself? And if what has already arisen produces the arising, then since it has already arisen, what is going to be produced again and what is already produced? Neither what is currently arising, nor the arisen, nor what is non-arisen arise in any way at all. Thus they are explained by the analysis in chapter 2. <laughs> That's pretty clunky when he says that. I don't like that. Of the moving, the moved, and the mo and the unmoved. They are explained by the analysis of the unmoved, of the moving, the moved, and the unmoved. The present arising does not take place within something already arising. So how can we say that what is currently arising is dependent upon that something? Whatever arises dependently is inherently pacified. Therefore, what is currently arising and the arising itself are pacified. Whatever arises dependently is inherently pacified. Therefore, what is currently arising and the arising itself. I had a big question mark with this. He doesn't explain what he means by whatever arises dependently is inherently pacified. But, oh, thank you. Whatever or arises, I, I sort of gave up trying to understand. Yeah, yeah. I... But he I, doesn't, he thank you for not that. giving yeah. up. Whatever <laughs> arises in, uh, dependently is inherently at peace. So uh, if it's dependent, then it's a non... Non, it's a non-act. There's no thing that's actively able to do anything. So it's passive. All sort of possibilities are pacified. Are you, you know, pacifying with that mudra? Is that the pacifying I, mudra? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> going crazy because you know there's such mystery here, and I think he's arguing against this mysticism, but he still engages with it, like. Um, he, he ascribes, as probably the culture did from which he sprang, um, these phenomena as animated, living things. And maybe it's used metaphorically, but it seems like it's used literally. And like, you know, almost as though light and darkness are being in a mystical way. Um, and that's, I think, what's really difficult to get beyond. Well, we gotta we gotta read through that article, the that uh, excerpt that I sent around from Ter Theravada Abhidhamma for next week, and and we'll talk about that a little bit. And you know, they a lot of it is about this idea of uh, entity or swabhava and characteristics. And when we talk about phenomena having characteristics. Is there a phenomena that possesses the characteristics or is it separate from the characteristics? And that extends to characteristics such as having been ar ar uh, having arisen and being caused and being conditioned. You know, uh, we usually think of characteristics as color or shape or things like that or weight or size. 
but uh, you know, stretch that idea of characteristic to uh, any anything that has an impact on something. And let's look at that next week. But it's clear that this is the precedent of Shakespeare. I mean, this is just like totally a Shakespearean play, I think, and should be read in the in the Oxford accent in that way. If if any non-arisen entity is found anywhere, then it would arise. But how does it arise when it does not exist? And if an arising were to give rise to the current arising, what arising would give rise to that arising? If another arising gives rise to this arising, arising is an infinite series. But if what is arisen is without arising, then everything arises in this manner. Thus the arising of something existent or non-existent is not admissible. This was demonstrated previously. The arising of something that is ceasing to be does not occur, but an entity that is not ceasing to be does not occur. An entity that has endured does not now endure, nor does an entity that has not endured, nor does the currently enduring. And how can what is not yet arisen endure? The duration of an entity that is ceasing to be does not occur, but an entity that is not ceasing to be does not occur. When all things are always by nature decaying and dying, what things endure without decay and death? The endurance does not endure through itself or through another endurance, just as arising does not arise through itself or another arising. What has not yet ceased does not cease. Nor does what has already ceased, nor does the currently ceasing and what non-arisen thing ceases and cease. Thus the cessation of an enduring entity does not occur, nor does the cessation of an entity that is not endured. Indeed, a given state does not cease by means of that state, nor does it cease by means of another state. When the arising of all things does not occur, then the cessation of all things does not occur. So too, to claim the cessation of a self-existent entity is not tenable. Indeed, it is not tenable to claim an entity in the absence of an entity in a context of oneness. In addition, the cessation of a not truly existing entity is not tenable, just as the second beheading of a person does not occur. Cessation does not cease because of itself, nor because of something else, just as the arising of a rising is not because of itself or because of something else. Because arising, enduring, and cessation cannot be established, there is nothing conditioned. And when the condition cannot be established, how can the unconditioned be established? Like an illusion, or a dream, or the castle in the sky of the Gandharvas, so have arising, endurance, and cessation been explained. And without ceasing, we should cease at this point of our endurance without enduring. Any uh, further comments or suggestions or questions or anything? Anything at all? Everything has been pacified. Well, it was inherently, it is inherently pacified, supposedly. 
it is inherently pacified. This this evening's class is inherently pacified. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Nice to not see you. <laughs> and uh, have, a, have a nice uh, evening and a, and a nice week and see you again soon. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.